0: Today we're in Acts, Acts 14, 16 through 18, which will lead us into a discussion about common grace. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for your kindness and goodness and everything that you've done for us. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us better understand your word so that we could think biblically and be uh, those who are trusting you and honoring you in all we do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the text is Acts 14, 16 to 18, and then we'll explain how that relates to the what I think accurate and true doctrine of common grace and what why that's good terminology theologically, okay? Acts 14, 16 to 18, citing the New American Standard Bible. Paul, again, remember he's in Lystra and There were pagans there, just to set the stage, who had sought to uh, worship men. They thought Paul and Barnabas were deities that had come to earth, and they protested against that and rebuked them for their pagan thinking. And so Paul is still addressing these pagans in Lystra and teaching them the truth. So here's what he says in Acts 14, 16 to 18. In generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And then even saying these things, Luke tells us, with difficulty they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. So the pagans wanted to act like pagans and um, have false deities. In this case they even wanted to make Paul one of them. Paul and Barnabas, or two of them I should say. But in this address to the pagans in Lystra, Paul addresses what we call common grace. Notice some of the categories. I'm glad Eric's here. He'll be helping fill in this discussion. Generations gone by, he permitted the nations to go their own ways. And nations are important in how God is ruling now in this dispensation. As we've taught many times, and Eric certainly taught this several places, including Romans 13, that civil government is what God uses now to restrain evil. And, but within the context of civil government there is a certain amount of liberty where God doesn't just directly intervene and bring wrath on the head of every wicked sinner. They have to be arrested, brought to trial, and so on. So, this happens through civil civil government. Now, I went to see what I could find that would be good theology on this, and I noticed that there's an awful lot of lack. The the concept of common grace was articulated by Calvin, but when you look at the uh, Reformed systematic theologies there's some things in there that I just can't go along with alright and so therefore I, I don't want to recommend some of the data one of the things they try to do with it is use common grace as their excuse for infant baptism okay so they're going to they're more concerned about the children of Christians than about this sort of thing about how God runs his whole universe and they're thinking that if we baptize our children and catechize them, which is fine. I'm certainly in favor of Christians teaching doctrine to their children. And, but the things I don't agree with are creating eccentricities that aren't even biblical. So that children of Christians are so eccentric and so odd because we force them to be that way. That, that they can't fit in with the rest of the world. And, and we're going to make this halfway covenant. Which reform made up. It's not in the Bible. And so you're sort of a Christian. So they're still affirming that, we, that the doctrine of election is true. And the election is not genetic. And that there are people in their churches who were baptized, catechized, joined the church in some way or another. But aren't born of God. And they put that under common grace. It's as if they could enhance common grace by Christianizing the unregenerate children of believers. So therefore I decided I wasn't going to recommend any of the particular systematic theologies in their doctrine of common grace because I think they're importing that idea in. Common grace is a good, true doctrine. So interestingly, the best material I could find, and I didn't do an exhaustive search, was grace to you, John MacArthur. And he has a thing here called the universal grace of God that came out from grace to you. And I thought it was one of the better, succinct um, documents I could find that explained the doctrine of common grace. But I think I'll make my own contribution the best I can here. And we'll go through this and look at some scriptures. And so this is certainly one of the scriptures you want to know. He permitted the nations to go their way. But, but notice the witness he had. This is common. He did, he did good. Okay, so God is showing goodness and kindness even to those who hate him and blaspheme him. So Paul is rebuking the pagans who want to go back to some other world view of the gods coming down and interacting with the humans. That was pre-flood. okay. And so somehow, it's very interesting, in this world view... Somebody's talking to us and I don't know who it is. Oh. I bet you it's the the it's that thing there. So isn't it nice to be in the twenty first century where devices are talking to you all the time? Charge your battery. Eric's working on it. Okay, so pre flood pre flood the gods we're literally interacting with humans and some of these are fallen beings I hope you know that in the Old Testament Elohim in depending on the context could be speaking of beings that are part of the divine council that aren't good angels but they're fallen you see that in Job you see that in 1 Kings where one of them offered to go be a lying spirit in the in the mouths of the prophets. You know a good angel can't be a lying spirit. But when this interaction was going on in Genesis 6, God judged it with the flood. So when you look at how the universe is being run, you have to look post-flood, Babel, the judgment of Babel, The establishment of nations with boundaries and God ruling. There's still the divine council, but now the direct rule is through civil government. Okay, The pagans in Lystra were still thinking the old way. The gods are going to come down and interact with us. And so they were thinking that Paul and Barnabas were in that category. And so Paul is correcting them. No. Um, he permitted the nations to go their way, but he did not leave them without witness. So he, the nations have their own civil governments. And then as far as the direct providential rule that shows common grace, he did good. The goodness of God can be seen in the general creation. When the rain comes to water crops, it doesn't fall simply on the Christian farmer's farm, and then never rain on the farm of the person who's a pagan. It doesn't work that way. The floods and the rains, whether they be good or bad, are indiscriminate in regard to whose property gets hit. If there's a fire, it doesn't only just burn the homes of wicked people. It may burn the homes of Christians. We're all living in the same world. So when it comes to common grace, Everyone is in the same world and sees the same benefits and sometimes is touched by the same negative things that happen. So he gives rain from heaven, fruitful seasons. So if you have a bumper crop the whole nation enjoys the fruits of the harvest indiscriminately as to who's good and who's bad and who loves God and who's a pagan and who's an atheist and who isn't. It's a it's goodness that all can benefit from now one of the things that is so wicked about the world we live in is that the pagans take that and try to make the creation an object of worship and so that's part of what Paul is rebuking we're just of like nature as you you can't worship the creation Paul and Barnabas are finite created human beings who came into existence at a point of time. And so today in, in the world we live in, to make it personal for America, I think the probably the most prominent or at least growing religion in all of America is neo-pagan nature worship. There are parts of our country where everybody seems like are like that. I talked to a Christian a person who was an, uh, oral hygienist cleaning teeth. And I know for some years, and she had visited a sister out on the west coast, out in Washington. The neo pagan nature worship is everywhere, and she said she went to church with her sister, and they were literally worshiping self and worshiping nature, and rather than the creator, they worshiped the creation. And so Paul running into that only in a polytheistic sense and was rebuking it and teaching them the doctrine of common grace. Now what happens next, and I'll give you a little preview, in verse 19, after they try to restrain the crowds from their pagan worship and trying to drag the apostles into it, it says in Acts 14, 19, but Jews arrived from, Antioch, arrived from Antioch at Niconium when they had went over the crowds and stoned Paul. They dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. It's very interesting that the religious Jews who had opposed the gospel previously, even though some of the Jews did believe, they are the ones who know best that what Paul is saying is true. They are the ones who know for sure that idolatry is wicked and will be judged by God. They are the ones who would agree that this is vain and that God had allowed the nations to go their way. And he had chosen Israel. Israel was under the direct rule of God, under the old covenant. They had the law. They had law that was given by God through Moses at Sinai. They had direct divine intervention but then they rebelled and they went the way of the pagans. Eric, do you want to comment on this as I'm thinking about what to say next here?
1: Well, I think you're absolutely right, Bob, that there's a distinction that Paul wants them to see, and I think it's very insightful. What you've said is they're stuck on the old paradigm, these pagans, as if the gods come down, these angelic beings they wouldn't call them angels but they think the gods came down and that was part of what we saw happen in Genesis chapter 6 that you had the sons of God went into the daughters of men and what happened is more than likely this happened at Mount Hermon and so throughout the scriptures there's a contrast between Mount Hermon and Jerusalem what God is doing for example in the book of Isaiah there's a contrast between Babylon and Jerusalem or Mount Hermon and Jerusalem so Mount Hermon where these demonic beings came down, it's always seen as jealous of Jerusalem because God's rule is going to be in Jerusalem. And so sometimes you'll see, for example, in Isaiah, the uh, Mount Hermon will be called Mount Zaphon. I remember I talk about, it sounds like you're answering Zaphon, but that's how it's pronounced in Hebrew, Zaphon. And it's the places of the north, and that's where the angelic realm came down, the demons. And they actually impregnated women, and you end up having the Nephilim, well, this ends up in the cultures that are even pagan. For example, how many of you here have ever heard of the Titans? Uh, there's movies about the Titans. Well, these the Greeks have the same understanding, but they right. believe that they came down not to Mount Hermon, but to Mount Olympus. So what's interesting is you even have pagan corroboration right. in these cultures that, yes, they came down. So what Bob is, I think it's a very astute, Bob, you're showing, look, they're living in that worldview. Paul wants them to leave that and say, no. To God get out they,
0: of that world view. That's not exactly. how God's ruling now. God uses nations. He's not allowing these gods to come down and do these things. Amen. All right? And that goes back to uh, Noah. And so the the world had a like a corporate memory of what had happened. Yes. And you see also some of the Babylonian flood epics and what have you where they talk about these things. So... Um, if you go back, if someone if someone wants to turn to Genesis 8.22, we'll see a promise that was given to Noah that I think you see an echo of in Paul's discussion with these would-be worshipers of the pagans here who wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas.
2: Genesis 8.22?
0: Yes, go for it.
2: While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease.
0: Right, so after the flood, through Noah, there was a promise that the sort of thing Paul is talking about fruitful seasons, rains, and whatever wouldn't cease. That's a promise God gave to the whole human race through Noah in Genesis 8.22. Okay? And that's the way it it has been. I debated somebody who contacted me through CIC about global warming and the flood. I said, I'm not worried about flooding. Why? Because that's one promise we have for God, that he wouldn't destroy the earth with a flood. See, for some reason, people don't think these things... Are To be taken seriously, why, why take what God did said to Noah seriously as just why wouldn 't you if you 're a Christian god 's not going to flood the earth because He said that. The climate that shows, by the way, Genesis 822 the climate 's under god 's control. there 's only so much humans can do now. They can do an awful lot to make it bad. Did you see the thing in the paper about New Delhi? India? The people that really make the atmosphere horrible are pagans. Right. Diane read that. I, ha- I showed it to her. They, and we had met with someone who has a daughter that lives out there and it's almost unlivable. Why is it so bad there? Well, for one thing, rather than figuring out how to deal with their crops properly, once they're done harvesting, they just light fires and burn all the fields. All the smoke right up in the air. Then they have some pagans festival where everybody shoots off. 22 million people are shooting off fireworks. Okay? And someone was telling us that, that we met here at church and had lunch with. And then we read in the paper. And so the whole place is just smoke and nasty, awful pollution because they're having a pagan festival and they would—they don't want to give up their fireworks and they don't want to give up burning off the stubble rather than using more reasonable techniques like we do in America where you you'd make more black dirt out of the leftover stalks of the corn and the beans or whatever and you plow it in and you figure out things to do with it that are helpful to the soil or to avoid erosion like we did when I was on the farm. And so they have a pagan worldview, and they're destroying the air, dumping tons and tons and tons of chemicals and car- uh, not just carbon dioxide is not air pollution. That's not what's causing the problem. By the way, carbon dioxide is invisible. It's absolutely invisible, even in the middle of the winter. So when you see somebody show a smokestack and say, pollution, they show a picture of a smokestack was white smoke coming out you know what white smoke out of smokestack is water it's water vapor and they only take the picture in january because if they took it in july you would see nothing air pollution nothing carbon oxides invisible so that's not what's in the air in new delhi that anybody's seeing it's unburned hydrocarbons uh, oxides of nitrogen oxides of sulfur from the fireworks that they're blowing off. And in the paper, the article, when when they're confronted, they're saying 30-year-olds have lungs like very, very old people who smoked all their life. They're just walking around New Delhi. It's like smoking two packs a day of cigarettes. Okay, And so the people are dying of lung cancer. It's a horrible situation. And when they address it, there's no call for within the populace to change anything. We want our fireworks. We want to burn off our crops. We don't care. So there's pagans, okay? And so who do the liberals come after? America. America. We're evil. Why? Because we just go about doing business like God permits nations to do, to plant our crops and do so in a very enlightened way as far as the effects on the environment so that you save your soil and you save the fertility and you can t- still have a harvest and so on. And they don't even say anything, rarely, about these pagans who are destroying the ability of humans to live even in their own cities. New Delhi, India. Look it up if you look these things up on in Google. So he's permitting them to go their way. Yes.
2: I wanted to comment on what Eric was talking about, uh, the The people that were hearing what Paul was saying here, and then Eric was talking about the, the book of Genesis with the fallen angels. It's no coincidence, of course, they don't know this at the time, but in the book of Revelation we learn that Jesus steps foot on Mount Hermon when he comes down. So that's not coincidental. There's a reason that he comes down there?
0: Um, I thought he, where, Eric, is
2: that correct? Or Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a... It's a uh, Mount of Olives. Yeah, Mount of Olives. It's, Mount
0: Hermon would be where the demons interacted with the right, people. Right,
2: right. But there's... Uh, isn't there, isn't there a, a reason that goes to that same
0: subject? Well, that, well let that me... That's ex- where, okay, I, I can address Revelation. I believe it's where is it when the demons are released out of the pit? In chapter 9?
1: Chapter 9, that's yeah.
0: right. So how God rules his universe is he locked up the very, this is the ones that came down in Genesis 6 that caused the flood in order to stop it. The ones who had sinned in that way, and you can read this in the book of Jude and in Second Peter 2, I believe, are locked up in the abyss. So they can't do what they were doing. Right? They're let out in Genesis, or excuse me, Revelation nine, and they're like scorpions and nasty beings that bite people. and the people that were bitten you read in Revelation nine, are crying out in pain and torment. It's awful, because these are evil beings. They hate humans, who are creating God's image, and they want to inflict damage and harm. And so when that plague is over, and Eric's the expert on this, do you know what it says, this ironic and tragic and horrible in Revelation about the people that are on the earth who have been bitten by these scorpions? They did not repent of their sorceries. They wanted more. The human race so lusts For interaction with the world of the spirits, that they're willing to be bitten and tormented as long as they get to interact with those spirits. That's what they want. And finally, in Revelation, God allows it and in the end wipes it out. And the principles are thrown into the pit. Now, we are blessed to live in this dispensation. In which God sends rain, fruitful seasons, food, and gladness. But they weren't satisfied. They wanted the gods. They're going to get it after the rapture, but it's not going to be good. Now, it says in, if you want to turn here to Genesis 9 11, let's get a biblical worldview. Imagine how much better off it would be in all the evangelical churches in America if Christians actually had a biblical worldview. <coughs> It'd be revolutionary. Oh, yes. I just got an email from a guy who's in a huge evangelical church, and they're bringing in Enneagram and using it to train their leadership.
2: Oh, what's
0: that? I don't remember the name of it. It was in Dallas. It's somewhere down in Texas. I don't remember exactly which church it was. But the guy said Enneagram is this thing where is, uh, we've shown through CIC and Jessica and I are doing podcasts. It's just total occultism. Anti-Christian occultism. And this guy alerted the leadership to the dangers and problems of it. And they said no, we're, we want to do it anyhow. You know, pagan nature worship. Genesis 9:11. Genesis 9:11. I'm establishing my covenant with you that never again will all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood nor will there ever be a flood that destroys the earth Genesis 9:11. mark that verse and the next politician that says we face an existential threat from a flood tell them you lie I will believe the word of God I won't believe you course they'll think we're nuts because we're not pagan the earth is not going to be destroyed by another flood God promised that and he also promised there'd be seed time and harvest oh we're not going to be able to feed everybody oh yes we're feeding more people than we ever did childhood obesity worldwide is a bigger problem now than starvation For many, many years, wheat harvest worldwide has been at record levels. There's plenty of food. Cape Biblical worldview. Now, here it says he's not left himself without a witness. Nature is a beautiful witness to the wisdom of God Paul says in Romans to his invisible attributes being clearly seen through what is made. So when we see nature, it's right to appreciate the handiwork of God. And we're not criticizing anyone for enjoying the sunset or the ocean or the trees or the bees or the flowers or the forests or the rivers or all the things that we admire because they're a witness to the handiwork of God. And there's a reason to be good stewards of what God has allowed us to enjoy, and Christians do so. Christians are motivated to take care of their property. My dad was a leader in that. He was one of the first ones to adopt minimum tillage farming in Northwest Iowa. I later asked him when we were fishing, why did you do that so early? None of the other farmers were. What do I mean by that? Well, originally they plowed in the fall all the corn and beans that they could get plowed so that they'd be ready to plant right away in the spring. But the problem with that is if you had a winter without any snow, when mom will remember some of this, when spring came, the wind would blow all the black dirt everywhere. You could get a dust storm. And if it rained, all of a sudden rained hard after the thaw, all that black dirt would just run on down the river. Uh, Iowa State University, where I went, sent extension people, because they were a leading agricultural university, to the various counties, and Dad would go to the extension meetings, and they'd tell the farmers that wanted to hear about it the latest thing they're learning. And he found out he didn't need to plow his bean stubble could leave it over to winter and just disk it and then plant corn. And uh, there, and he waited, taking a risk, but waited till spring to plow the corn stalks. And then later, they got to the point where they could deal with that differently with better, heavier equipment. And we didn't get the erosion. We end up with the neighbors' black dirt in our farm because they did the old way, and their dirt blow onto our farm. So he'd say, "Tell me, take a plow and plow that stuff over." further into our land along the fence line where it all like like a snow blown of the neighbors black dirt because he fall plowed but see it's christian people who have been influenced by the bible who have clean air and clean water and a clean place to live and appreciate it. But the pagans would like to take it over saying no it's bad if you worship God because you might abuse the environment. You should worship the creature and they, did, they refused to go look at India where they've been worshipping the creature for millennia and see what they did. Let's go to another address of Acts in Acts 17, 28 through 30. One of the things we're finding here okay, that's why Eric and I do this Paul addressed biblical worldview issues even when he addressed pagans. We've written about these things. I've been on the radio debating about them. Okay? We need to address the issues. They did it. So here is Paul in Athens where the philosophers and thinkers were doing what they do with their statues of various deities and there in Athens... And uh, Paul addresses them. So I have just part of that here. Acts 17, 28 to 30. For in him we live and move and exist. Even as some of your own poets have said, quote, for we are also of his, are his children, unquote. So he starts with that. Being then the children of God, we ought not to, (coughs) excuse me, we ought not to think that the divine, excuse me, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of men. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Now, this is consistent. In Lystra, Paul was saying Okay, he permitted you to go your own way, but now he's saying come to Christ. Okay, now we're in the new covenant and God is, rather than just Moses and the Israelites being the witness of direct divine revelation, now Christ and the apostles, he sends them to all of the nations. Whoever you are, wherever you are, this is for you you need to turn to Christ. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for sins publicly, to be raised publicly before witnesses as he went forth in his resurrection body. Not that they actually saw the event of the resurrection. They saw the resurrected Christ. and But the ascension was a public event. And so... There is no reason to, at this point, go about in ignorance and darkness because there is public truth that's proclaimed. And so this is saying, yes, you've enjoyed this common grace. Yes, you have been able to have your crops and enjoy nature and the sunrise and the sunset and to grow your flowers and crops and everything you like to do. God permits this its benefit. we should worship him and thank him for it, not worship the creature. That's an affront to God, the creation, I should say. But ultimately, the call is to repent and believe the gospel. So Paul's obeying the command that was given by Jesus to be his witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. So Paul 's addressing the philosophers and telling them they need Christ. Dr. Schnabel on this by the way, that 's a new commentary I guess, very good one, part of the Zondervan exe- exegetical commentary of the New Testament. Schnabel or Schnabel said this: quote, "Since human beings have been brought into existence by God, human beings cannot bring a God into existence by their skill." Greek word there, techne, where we get our word technical, techne. You can't make a deity. If you make your own, like a golden calf, then the human has control over the deity. The deity doesn't do what you want it to do, what do you do? Melt it down and make something else. Back to jewelry. The calf used to be earrings and bracelets. We don't like it now, we'll make it earrings and bracelets. But it turns out they had to drink it because Moses was angry, grounded up, put it in their water, said, Here, drink it. Okay, so um, back to Schnebel. Uh, human beings cannot bring a God into existence by their skill, technique, and imagination. Uh, in Thumases, the carved work of sculptures bronze artists or wood carvers who imagine the divine being looks like, what a divine being looks like, and then produce an image made of gold. Crusos, or silver, and so on. or stone, I won't give you all the Greek, that is placed on a pedestal displayed in a temple. In one of the plazas of the city, or in a private house, cannot possibly be the god who created human beings including the idol manufacturers. If human beings live and move and exist as a result of being god's offspring, unusual terminology but meaningful in the context, god created humans. We're not all sons in a saving relational sense, but we're all offspring of Adam who god did create. That's that's what he means there. Get back to my Images who exist but who neither live nor move cannot be God. The divine nature cannot be of a lower order. So whatever is created cannot be God. Because by definition, the created is of a lower order than the creator. God created Adam in his image. The whole human race, her offspring of Adam. Adam sinned, and Adam all die. Christ, the non-created eternal creator, second person of the Trinity, came into our world to be the perfect man who paid for our sins and made atonement and redemption possible. We worship him, not the creation. And it's a myth to think that those who worship the creation take better care of it than those who worship the creator. Why? Because morals do not come from the creation. They just flat out do not. And if you want to look at human history, you can see that. Hitler was a prime nature worshiper. Read the book Nazi Ecology by Mark Musser. Hitler's religion was nature worship. And what did he do? He scorched the earth with his horrible plot to destroy everybody and try to create a master race. Morals come from the creator who has spoken once for all. And if the God who has spoken tells us to till and keep the ground, we have a reason to do it. All right? So let me make a (coughs) further citation here. Paul's critique of the manufacture of representations of divine beings and thus of idol images as an indictment of popular piety in the cities of the Greco-Roman world, says Schnabel, a piety with which the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers disagreed in theory but accommodated in practice. By the way, Epicureans were known as those who believed that pleasure was the greatest good, and Stoics wanted to be above passion and just have pure reason. But in reality, they just sat there with the rest of the idolaters and really really were no different. As Schnabel said, accommodated in practice. Both schools had integrated their philosophical convictions with contemporary religiosity and with its statutes, statues of deities and temples and altars In sacrifices, Epicurus was convinced that popular piety was misguided, but he did not tell his followers to refrain from participating in the local cult. And so it goes. So they look for pleasure or philosophy, but in the end, worship the creature rather than the creator. This was rebuked in the Old Testament. Let me cite for you Isaiah 41 29 Isaiah 41:29. Look, all of them are deception. Their works are nothing," says the prophet. Their images are wind and emptiness. Futility means chasing the wind." In uh, Ecclesiastes. Their images are wind and emptiness; they're nothing. Gods that did not create the earth, it says in the prophets, shall perish from the earth. The gods imagined in the minds of humans cannot judge us. <coughs> so there's Paul in Athens. Now, by the way, that material from MacArthur, he used Acts seventeen twenty-eight is one of the headlines of that that essay in uh, Grace to You and it's very well done. Let's continue. So Paul teaches common grace both in Acts 14 and Acts 17. In both cases addressing pagans. We see now that Jesus also teaches common grace. Matthew 5.45. That should be on your printout. Matthew 5.45 so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. Same idea. Whatever is good or beneficial to the human race in a common sense everyone is allowed to enjoy when someone does a vicious thing the civil government is there to restrain it but in some cases they get by with it and we start thinking well maybe we got to do something we'll let the civil government deal with it and realize that God allows evil to go on but woe to the one who does the evil there's not going to be an escape because there is a final judgment. Now in Luke 6:35, we see the same thing. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Let me ask a question. How do we know God is kind to ungrateful and evil men? How do we know that? (laughs) History goes on, doesn't it? People are free to shake their fist at heaven and blaspheme God, and when they do, does fire come down and zap them? No. They can write a book, and the entire book can be trying to prove social and spiritual evolution, that God is in everything, Therefore, everything is evolving into a future paradise without judgment. I wrote a book refuting that idea. They're free to have their book. They're free to have a conference promoting their book. They're free to sell their book. They're free to make money off their book. That's the world of ideas. But something being said or successful or popular doesn't make it true and right. Right. It's certainly not popular to believe that there's a coming judgment, but there is. It may not be popular to reject all versions of evolution, which I do, but evolution isn't true. Moral and spiritual evolution is what's popular now. They've gotten bored with biological evolution. It's more powerful in their minds to think that we're all evolving into godhood, And so there you have it. That was certainly the idea of Hitler and the Aryan supremacy idea. So we are to pray. We are to show kindness. We are to be good citizens. We are to pay our taxes. And we are to recognize the right given by God for all humans to enjoy the sunrise, the sunset, and the rain and... The fruits of the ground. It's common grace. I believe Nancy asked a question a while back and it prompted me to say something that thinking back on, I think I may have gotten it right. It's amazing if that was the case. But remember Eric was talking about the wrath of God? Okay. And he was talking about expiation and being saved from God's wrath. And Nancy asked about common grace. So I made a statement that <clears throat> expiation saves us and delivers us from God's wrath. So we're not under it, right? Common grace del- is a delay in God's wrath. Okay, so you're either delivered from God's wrath or is delayed. And so the thinking, I I just answered that off the top of my head, but thought about maybe that was correct. I think that's correct. (laughs) You know, um, if we flee to Christ and trust in him, the blood of Jesus delivers us from God's wrath and we're immediately right with God. And we are looking forward to heaven. But if we don't, Anyone who doesn 't can continue to to uh, enjoy life on the earth, but that doesn 't mean god 's wrath is a myth go ahead eric it 's a very good point you know um,
1: we 've seen and heard in some of our discernment ministries almost a desire at times for god 's wrath to come. One example was there was a fellow who wrote a book, and it was about how Katrina was a result of America under Obama, mistreating, or maybe was under Bush, mistreating Israel. And what Bob and I have shown biblically is we always have to be content with the wrath to come. So we can't know whether, whether any given thunderstorm or tornado today is the wrath of God. Think about John the Baptist says, Who told you brood of vipers to flee from the wrath to come? Yeah, to come. And so what Bob is saying is exactly right. We have to be content with that. Just as God allows people who are sinners... To live their lives, you and I have to have that same mindset where we 're not trying to wipe out the infidel, but we 're trying to preach Christ to them. Um, think about in Romans, where Paul says they're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. notice it 's not now it 's always pushed off into the future it's
0: storing up And that word I think it's this, uh, where are we get a word thesaurus yeah. Uh, it, it actually gets interest.
1: Yeah, it accrues interest. It that's accrues right. interest. That's right. I remember, Bob, you and I were doing radio once, and you said something that just struck me because there's times in my life where I was too harsh with the unregenerate. And something that Bob cited from the book of James where it says the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God, it really you know, kind of hit me to the heart. And so that's something we can take away is to say, look, if God is kind to these wretched sinners and doesn't just wipe them out, how much more should you and I have the same mindset? Yes, that, we That's Christ, what's being
0: said here. Exactly right. But, but while you got the mic, what, when it means sons of the Most High, what's the co- connotation in that context?
1: Yeah, the idea is that you're, by the way, a lot of times they didn't like to use the term God, but sons means characterized by.
0: Exactly. That's the idea. So if you show kindness... To people that aren 't even Christians, you are being like god you 're characterized by because God shows goodness and kindness to even those who hate him, so if we do the same we 're being like God yeah. is that right yeah. that 's what that means yes norm um, eric 's comment
2: about uh, you know we we can 't say that some disaster was caused by God and that's absolutely true. What I struggle with a little bit is can we dogmatically in every case say that God did not intervene in some event and show it? I mean, we don't know that but we can't, can we say no he didn't for sure? I would say
1: we don't know because we don't have an authoritative apostle or prophet to tell right. us whether something's the wrath of God. And we don't want to fall into that error where, remember the disciples ask, well, why was the man born blind? Was it his sin yeah. or the sin of the parents? And Jesus cuts the Gordian knots and says, well, it wasn't either. It was so that God may be glorified. They falsely assumed that tragedy came as a result of God's right. wrath. Yeah. Remember Jesus the other
0: place where, where, Paul, where Jesus talked about some bad events where the blood was mingled yeah. with the sacrifice. Do you yeah. think there worse sinners than the other Galileans?
2: It just makes me uncomfortable to say, God, you couldn't have done something.
0: No, but there's what we know and what we don't know. In God's providence, everything is under his purview and control. And all things work together for the good of those who love God or are called according to his purpose. So we're not saying God isn't involved. He's involved with everything. But Eric is exactly right. Unless we have an infallible, authoritative prophet telling us, we don't know. And here's another one. If we go back to the Old Testament and study the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Prophets and so on, one of the sorts of literature that you have in the Old Testament is the lament. Uh, literature. The lament. The Hebrew lament. And the Hebrew lament often went, why? How long? Why doesn't God do something? How, how long shall it be? And the answer was many times, that's in God's hands. That's not for you to know. Okay? And so how long, oh, Lord, shall this be? We talked about that from Isaiah 6. Well, there he's bringing about a judgment of hardening by letting them have what they wanted. See, the judgment of hardening, God says, all right, there you go. Do every evil you want. Go ahead, have at it. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then the judgment more severe when it does come. Paul.
1: Paul. Uh, this what you just said that we don't know, does this fall under uh, faith alone sort of thing? We have
0: faith. God's in control. We just don't know all things. We can't be certain of, certain things we cannot be certain of. Yeah, and we need to address the most pertinent, thank you, Paul, the the most pertinent passage would be when Jesus said, do you think there were sinners because some tragedy happened? And he said, you don't know that. I remember sitting out at KKMS and Someone else was out on the radio show before I was going to be interviewed, and they'd had this big, horrible thing happen in New Orleans. And there was a guy on there saying, See, that's because God is judging New Orleans because they're so wicked. Right. And he was going on like he was Jeremiah. In fact, the guy said, I feel like Jeremiah. I, and then he was going on and on. And I'm sitting there, and this is bad theology. He doesn't know that. No, 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 no. There's no God-ordained prophet to, Jer- to New Orleans. Right. And maybe we can sit here in Minneapolis and think, oh, we're not as bad as sinners as those people in New Orleans. I can't. Well, I look at Minneapolis. I don't get any comfort. <laughs> I don't know if you saw the paper. I don't even want to think about what was the headline of the paper yesterday. My goodness. And so we can't know this. We can't know this. There were Christian churches wiped out in New Orleans, along with uh, brothels and other stuff. It's, we live on the same earth. Yes.
1: So I, I just had a question here, thinking of Hebrews 12, verse 5 and 6. talks about, I think it's quoting Proverbs, actually. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he reproves him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and chastises every son whom He receives. And I know we have exemplary judgments in the New Testament. We see that in First Corinthians, or the Lord's Supper, that people were suffering and had died. You know, mean, it, yes. It, it seems here with the discipline, does that take a physical form? How do we see what the discipline of the Lord is? Because it seems like a restorative thing that's given to the believers. So how can we see that?
0: All right. Thank you, uh, Ryan. Right. Good. Good question, good uh, issue to address. God deals more severely, according to that, now with his own children. Because his children are under his discipline. We can't know exactly what form it takes. That's, That's God's sovereign decision. But one thing about Christians... That we're to have a sensitive conscience if something really bad goes on Christians are always wondering about it and we take stock we can't say one to one well because my car broke down God's angry with me we don't necessarily know that or because I have a very difficult disease to deal with or I'm having trouble in trial we don't know exactly but we care we care and we start thinking I need to, my life needs to get straightened out. I've felt that way many times. Have you ever felt that way? This isn't good. This isn't right. I need, something needs to get straightened out in my life. And so don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. It's not like there's some clear word saying, yea, thus of the Lord, this is discipline. But it's, it's it's as if we know whatever happens, we, we, we cry out to God and we go to God and ask him to help us. Is that right? Would you say it any differently, Eric? No, exactly right. And I would, I would just cite too,
1: the the Romans 8.28 that Bob did earlier, that he does cause all things to work for the good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Bob has often said that providence contains both good and evil. Mm-hmm. And the one thing we can affirm is that for the believer in Jesus Christ, all things are going to be used by God to make us conform to his image. So whatever happens in our lives, what differentiates us from the pagans isn't that we don't suffer and the pagans do, or they do and we don't. What differentiates us from the pagans is they can't be assured that what's befalling them is for their good necessarily. We can we can. So that's what's so different. I can affirm that my GERD, I've got gastroesophageal reflux disease. It's for my good. And I don't like it, (laughs) but I know it's for my good. And I can rejoice that God is doing it for a reason in me. I don't always know the side of glory, what it is. You may not know what it is,
0: but you care. But we care. And we know it's for good, and we know the promises. And we take stock, and we take action. Uh, That's what Christians do. It really does matter. It really does matter. Um, So I had a thought about that. Paul's thorn in the flesh. Every once in a while in the Bible, God will pull back the curtain. So we see in, like with Job, where Satan is going before in the divine council. Have you considered my... And so 2 Corinthians 12, the curtain is pulled back in the case of Paul. And so he yeah, has the thorn in the flesh. We don't even know what it is. And if he sought God and he the apostle had an answer but the the tense of the Greek makes me think it was a reminder of something he'd already been taught he has said my grace is sufficient for you okay and so Paul was allowed to keep his thorn in the flesh that he wanted to be rid of but he knew that it was for his good in this case that he would not exalt himself because of the abundance of the revelations that's sort of an exemplary thing, in my mind, where the curtains pull back, and we get to see. But in our case, we may not. We don't have necessarily a clear answer like that. But we may think of a scripture that applies. His grace is sufficient for us. If Paul's thorn in the flesh was for his good, our sickness, our difficulty, our troubles, our trials, our family issues, whatever, are for our good. We can learn that. Does that make sense, Eric? Do you think that's right? Okay, so what we do know is for our good. Now, next week, we'll start in Genesis 11, and we're going to look at the Tower of Babel. All right? And we're going to see how God runs his universe, what was going on with the Tower of Babel, why they wanted to get up into heaven, what they were looking for, and why it was so bad, and why God was merciful to give us human rulers even though they ain't so great. As bad as our human rulers are, they're not as bad as the demons we would have. Now somebody may say, well, okay. (laughs) Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and goodness and for your word. And may we learn and grow by what you've taught in Jesus' name. Amen.